I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. He discovered that on two pages of a book, we have the possibility of comparison that inspired him to combine artworks from different sources, from different countries, from different traditions. And this really made him kind of drunk by his own enthusiasm. In this episode, I speak with Walter Graskamp, art critic and former chair of art history at the Academy of Fine Arts Munich, and Thomas Gaitkins, director of the Getty Research Institute, about Walter's new book titled The Book on the Floor, André Malraux and the Imaginary Museum. The Getty publishes some 30 books a year, deriving from or relating to the work of its museum and academic programs. Today we'll talk about one such publication, The Book on the Floor, André Malraux and the Imaginary Museum. Malraux, the French novelist, minister of cultural affairs, and art theorist, published his seminal book, Le Musée Imaginaire, in the early 1950s. Walter Grasskamp takes Malraux's work as a launching point for an inquiry that is as much about the history of illustrated art historical texts and the place of Malraux's books in that history as it is about a particular kind of art history, a transnational comparative art history, a way of looking at works of art across national borders. Walter joined me and Tomas by phone from his office in Munich. I started by asking him what it was that inspired him to write this book. I began with wondering about a photograph, and this is the photograph that is in the center of my book, a photograph that I think every art historian knows, at least in our generation, showing a a gentleman uh, in a Paris salon uh, looking over a hundred sheets of printed paper, uh, double spreads of a book he's working on, a photo that is very ubiquitous in uh, art historical uh, literature of uh, our days, but never printed very um, correctly. And so the first time I saw a complete print of this photograph, I admired it first. And then I wondered why all the illustrations laying on the floor um, were in the opposite direction to uh, the person who was overlooking them. And so I wondered, what is he doing here? Meaning that the images are visible to... To To the viewer of the photograph, but not to the person photographed. And um, I think uh, immediately everybody who saw this photograph um, estimated that he was preparing the book, overlooking the production, rearranging the layout, whatever. But um, the situation was not according to this task. And so I wondered, what is he doing here? And it's easy to find out that he's not doing work, but he's representing work. And that made me a bit skeptical about this form of self-representation of a famous art historian of his time. And I began to think about this photograph. That was actually the starting point of the book. It could have been an essay about a photograph, but then it turned out that there are so many themes entwined in this situation, um, and that the person who is Um, in the center of the photograph is a very controversial uh, and ambivalent um, person as well as a very prominent in his time and fascinating figure. And so I had to deal with uh, his biography, not only as an art historian, as which he is representing in this photograph, but in his many faceted roles that he played. And um, it's very difficult to just... 
um, make a short story of it. Uh, but I think there are some stages that are very important. And one is that he started out not as an art historian, becoming one of the most prominent art historians of his time. He didn't even study art history, but he was a young man when he entered the Parisian scene of um, Bohème and avant-garde and was very soon acquainted with Max Jacob. That's in the 1920s. And then he very soon began to be interested in making books. And so he started to edit books for publishing houses. And the second house that he um, came acquainted with was Gallimard, of all um, editing houses. And uh, this made him um, somebody um, who was as well dealing with art history as making art history by making books. But in th at the same time, he was kind of an adventurer and never um, on, on the spot for a long time. And he took uh, long journeys to South Asia. And on these journeys, he did something that made him not famous, but notorious. He picked up uh, pieces of reliefs in the nearby Angkor Wat in Cambodia with a clear um, decision to sell them in Europe or in the United States for a market that was existing and that was very hungry and was, it seemed, easy to be fed. And as far as we know, um, even gallerists and European gallerists were involved in sending him there and asking him to bring over some of these pieces. The market for world art, as we call it today, was uh, at the time um, expanding. Um, but he got caught. And so he was arrested together with his wife, who was accompanying him. Um, and after some time, his wife was... Uh, able to go to Europe and organize some uh, committee of solidarity and uh, Malraux got free. And after coming back to Paris, he immediately went back to Cambodia because now he was upset um, about the colonial circumstances in which the French ruled Cambodia and was part of a founder and part of a, a newspaper that was clearly anti-colonialistic. So uh, it's it's a, a, a figure who changed his aims and his appearances uh, in a in very short time. But all the time he had the ambition not only to be an editor and a writer, and, and he was a gifted writer as a journalist as well, and he uh, was a gifted uh, person for dealing with photographs for the magazine that he did in Saigon. But most of all, he was ambitious to write his own books. And so he became a novelist, uh, a, a famous novelist with stories uh, about South Asia, where he was shortly before. It was the, the man's fate. Yeah, and that, that was the Chinese Revolution, or the beginnings of it. Yeah, where he claims, or at least suggests, that he was involved in the preparation of the Chinese Revolution, which he never was. Uh, but more important is La, La Voie Royale. I don't know the English title, maybe The King's Way or The, the Royal Way. Royal Way, Which yeah. is about the story when he was in the jungle trying to uh, steal these reliefs. And he makes it a story of securing them um, for his novel. So he's a, a person that from the start invents his own life as well as living different uh, roles. Uh, and after that, he c comes back to France. He joins the Spanish 
civil war on the Republican side, of course, because he was at the time um, more or less part of the socialist, communist, bohemian scene in, in Paris and staged himself um, as, an, as an officer of the Republican uh, army responsible for the planes, uh, never having a pilot license himself. And after that, um, he went into the resistance and he fought against the Germans. Nobody knows how long, how engaged uh, it's disputed in the, in the literature. And after he has published a lot of his own books and published a lot of books as editor in the Gallimard Publishing House, now he becomes, after the war, um, the Minister for, of Information for Charles de Gaulle, a role that perfectly suits him uh, and his vanity. Um, but what is... <laughs> Uh, most astonishing till today is that his life was adventurous enough so he would not have to invent uh, a lot of other legends and stories and myths, um, which he did and which makes his biographers busy up to today just demystifying all the myths that he invented um, to um, brush up uh, his position, which was fascinating um, as it was without all these legends. Okay, okay, now let me bring Thomas into this discussion, uh, because, of course, Thomas is a specialist in the history of French painting and culture. Uh, Thomas, what do you make of Malraux and of his reputation in France, and does any of his reputation, as Walter's just uh, given it to us so clearly, does it affect his reputation as an art historian, of, of how we think of him as one, and what he's and the books that he's written? Well, the reception uh, is very different in France, in England, uh, in Germany, and uh, the US, one can say that generally there was a great interest in his publications after the Second World War. I'm not talking about the novels, but I'm talking about the art history books. However, he was not really accepted as an art historian, or let's say an academic art historian. He never studied art history, as uh, Walter says. He seemed to connect to earlier periods of art history, to Wilhelm Woringer, and um, first steps into a kind of a comparative art history, times when anthropologists were interested in art, like Grosse, Leo Frobenius, for example. And the idea of world art was heavily discussed by authors like um, Karl Wurman, uh, who edited three volumes about um, the history of art of all times and all peoples, um, already um, published in 1904. Um, so he was after, building on a, on a prior he was bibliography. Building on a um, earlier time, and after the war, Malraux inspired a whole generation, and and um, especially in Germany, also Arnold Bode, the founder of the first Documenta in 1955. In Germany and France, we can discover recently a renewed interest um, in Malraux. Um, authors and scholars like Didi Übermann, uh, Henri Zerner, um, published um, about him, but also um, several PhDs um, have been published about him in Germany. They focus more on Malraux using photography uh, as a medium and compiling these images into a new way of transferring or better provoking an immediate aesthetic reaction of a common, let's say, universal aesthetic. Yeah, and that's really what Walter's book is about. It's it's not so much about Malraux, the mythomaniac, as others have called him, but it's about 
the making of his books, and particularly the one book, The Museum Without Walls, as it's called in English, The Musée Imaginaire, and the role that illustrations have played in the writing of such history. Uh, Walter, tell us about the origin of Malraux's project, about his book, Le Musée Imaginaire, which early on you call his art album, to distinguish it from a book, I assume. And, and of course, it is uh, uh, related to the title of your book, The Book on the Floor. It is that book on the floor. Yes, it is. I think talking about Malraux, we have to differentiate between the writer and the editor. Um, the writer is completely different from the editor. The editor is very matter-of-fact, very intelligent in his editing work. The writer is very pathetic, pathos-laden, very enthusiastic, and it's close to a kind of self-excitation um, to when, when you follow his, his writing. And it's and it's very tiring uh, on all the pages that he's written to follow him in this kind of enthusiasm. And I think this more or less uh, damaged his reputation in the uh, academic uh, world. But on the other hand, he wrote about um, the media, uh, about photography, about cinema uh, earlier on than any art historian or Wissenschaftler, um, as we say today in Germany, uh, has done. He was not only focused as art that, as it is um, seen in the museum. So that makes him a very um, interesting person in the art historical texts, the context. But on the other hand, what makes his uh, renomé today, at least to me, is that he discovered the images as the central element of art publishing, of uh, art mediating, working in a, um, a publishing house like Gallimard and um, uh, seeing the products of other publishing houses, he was among the first to see that the possibility to print black and white photographs of art um, in books would make up a new market um, that um, made Gallimard famous in, in France. And this is mainly his merit, I think, that he did so. And he discovered that on two pages of a book, we have the possibility of comparison that inspired him to combine artworks from different sources, from different countries, from different traditions. And this really made him kind of drunk by his own enthusiasm because now he the, the possibility of comparison given on the double spread of a book um, he was taken away from these possibilities of comparison and made a kind of a visual thesis um, about world art that came into fashion not only by art historians by text but that he made a fashion in illustration as well and so what uh, I called an art album, or more or less uh, Fiona Elliott, who made a good translation, called the art album, uh, would be a Kunstbildband in German. It's very difficult to, to translate. It's a, an image, um, an art image volume, if you translate it literally, which sounds stupid. Uh, the art album is um, a book that is not focused on text with illustrations, but on images with commentaries. And that's the decisive change that he did not invent. Yeah, we should be clear for our for our listeners. If you can, the listeners can just imagine before them a book open to a spread, one page on the left, one page on the right. Sometimes it's putting an image, a photograph of a work of art on each, the left and the right, and making a point about that comparison. Other times it may have multiple images left and multiple images right. But it is the argument based on comparisons side by side of similarities and differences between them. I want to get to that in a in a minute, but I want to get back to the point of that comparison. 
which is the point of opening up one's understanding of, of the world's art history across national boundaries and looking for relationships uh, that exist between European, let's say, and Asian. And, and, and that was a contribution that he built on earlier precedents. Uh, Thomas, did this structural basis of comparisons have any relationship to university-based art history in Europe at the time? Well, I, I think we have to distinguish different directions in art historical scholarship. One is very seriously devoted to analysis based on historical contexts, stylistic comparisons, iconographic tradition, in a certain way, academic art history. Others, not only art historians, writers on art after 1900 were interested to explore the idea of world art. These were often museum curators like uh, Salmoni, mm -hmm. who um, was a curator in Cologne, who met Malraux in Paris, or authors like Karl Einstein. Um, these um, uh, scholars or writers were inspired by dealers like Flechtheim, Kahnweiler, Leris in France, collectors like Van der Heide. Osthaus and others. And of course, one should not forget the reception of Oceanic and um, African art by modern artists from Cubism to Surrealism. So in a certain way, Malraux was very much aware or even part of this artistic scene. Yeah. And I guess, as Walters pointed out, it's integrated between the university, the museum and the marketplace or, and the, the artist studio, in which there's a common interest in relationships across national borders. But did it have an implication for how one wrote a new art history? Or was it just uh, how it provoked an understanding of uh, current practices in art history or current opportunities in museums? I mean, what is the, what is the intellectual legacy of this uh, enterprise? The intellectual legacy is not um, a legacy to academic art history first, but it is an extremely important legacy to understand that a Eurocentric interest in art history changes. And um, this was, especially after the Second World War, a very, very important um, new element in the discourse. And um, uh, the younger generations, especially after World War II, were very much interested in uh, looking beyond um, Europe. And um, they had suddenly the feeling that um, there was more uh, to um, understand and to um, analyze and bringing this other worlds into contact with European art. And that's what, um, in a certain way, uh, Malraux did in his albums. Yeah, and, and important to Walter's thesis in the, the book is um, the role that photography plays in the development of art history books. And Walter, you mentioned Walter Benjamin's seminal essay, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, and its influence already on Malraux when it appeared in a French translation from the original German in 1936. Tell us about Malraux's response to Benjamin's essay and its effect on his conception of Le Musée Imaginaire project. Malraux is often criticized for producing all these legends and myths about his life, and he um, and it's it's not easy to defend him in this respect. But I think he should be defended in one of the myths that art historians created and um, um, and prolong that he did plagiarize Benjamin, if that's the word. He knew Benjamin and he heard of Benjamin's uh, thesis about the reproducibility of art as a very important change in, in um, um, the uh, reception of art. But I think 
uh, he came to the same conclusions from a different angle. He was producing books. He was producing reproductions. He was editing reproductions. He was playing with reproductions of art. And he discovered this game on his own. And so he was possibly one of the first to be able to understand what Benjamin was about. Because nowadays, this essay is one of the main essays of the 20th century. Uh, but I doubt if at the time when it was published, very many people would have understood what Benjamin was after. And so I think they met on eye level, if I can put it this way. But he never mentioned Benjamin um, after two essays, uh, never in his books. Um, and But this fits into um, his normal way of ignoring and not mentioning influences that, of course, he had. He never quotes his sources. He never quotes. No, he's fascinated by an or originality that he had, but that he augmented by others. <laughs> Well, you, you make the point, Walter, that uh, Benjamin was interested in photography as, and in this concept of the mechanical reproduction of works of art from a political, theoretical point of view. And, of course, Malraux is interested in it from a commercial perspective. Yes, I think you, we can put it this way. But um, what, what the, what, one of the results of my book that I was surprised with myself was to find out that Benjamin himself referred to a model of um, publishing uh, photographs uh, on art that he doesn't mention himself in his essay, but he could have mentioned. Uh, and this is um, the uh, uh, encyclopedia that André Vigneault published since 1936, and uh, which appeared at the same time when Benjamin wrote this essay, an encyclopedia um, that sounds uh, like an encyclopedia, but in fact was a book uh, of illustrations, of hundreds of illustrations with very few commentaries uh, that Benjamin must have known. But I never could um, prove that um, there was a connection between both of them. Both worked in Paris at the same time. Until um, I found in, in the uh, youngest edition of Benjamin's collected works, there is a hint that he was working on um, a review of an encyclopedia in 1935, which obviously was the start of his essay when he began to think about the reproducibility of, of art through photography. And this was an encyclopedia where Vigneault was published and the name is mentioned. So Benjamin knew what Vigneault was doing and that Vigneault was one of the theorists of photography. And the essay of Vigneault was called Les Besoins Collectifs de la Photographie. That was a, more or less the same position from which he uh, worked. And so I think it's much more interesting to see Benjamin in relation to Vigneault than Malraux in relation to Benjamin. This was one of the results of my book that surprised myself, and I think which is one, one of the crucial points that the, the book um, can... Um, uh, give a new view on how this um, thought transference worked on in Paris. But um, what is um, very striking is, of course, your uh, comparison of Vigneault and Malraux. And it is absolutely clear that um, Malraux started from Vigneault. Um, however, um, I think it should be very clearly stressed that Malraux's idea why he didn't quote Vigneault was that his start was completely different. 
uh, Vigneault only had photographs from one collection, let's say from one museum, mostly, by the way, from the Louvre. Um, but um, the idea of Malraux was, of course, to combine very different sources. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Um, Malraux, we should mention as well, was not, um, he, he, di he did not come to um, an art history that is combining different traditions, different nations, different cultures by reading or by visiting museums, but by traveling. Um, he is a person that was inspired by his own traveling to, to, uh, to, to Asia and made his um, connections much earlier than uh, the art world did. And of course, Vigneault focused on the Mediterranean. It's a classical position to make an encyclopedia of art that focuses on the Mediterranean and starts with Greece and, and, uh, and, and the Roman culture and Egyptian culture, while Malraux from the start had a much broader horizon and was inspired by what he saw on his travels as well by what he saw in, his, in the museum. That's right. And Vigneault was himself a photographer, is that correct? Uh, Vigneault, I should, have, I should have written a book that would have been called André Malraux and André Vigneault, because Vigneault is more or less for, forgotten. He is very important as a source of inspiration for Malraux. He was an art editor before Malraux became an art editor, and the encyclopedia, uh, the photographic encyclopedia of art that Vigneault started in 1935 is a very important date in the history of the development of art books and art mediation. But he's more or less forget, forgotten even in France. It was very difficult to find out about him. And he, on the other side, is as multifaceted a person as Malraux was because he began as a sculptor very early, was a trained artist and very promising artist, but then uh, turned to music and playing uh, the cello in Uh, the cinema with all these films that had no sound at the time. Um, people say he was not a very good uh, cello player, but at least it was the way he earned his money. And he began to deal with photography as an amateur and then went into professional studios and became uh, a very um, well-known man for advertisement photography. And that he made his living from that. Um, he came into the focus of a Paris publishing house that was establishing a program of photograph-based art books. And um, he was the main contributor to this program, Edition Tell, as Malraux was to Gallimard, but he was earlier than Malraux. Um, and after that, he went to Egypt and became uh, a manager of a film production and then ended up in television. It's, it's a life as fascinating as... Um, different as Malraux's, uh, no politics, no politics in it, that's interesting, um, but he is completely forgotten, so um, I could have stressed in the title of my book much more uh, than I did that this book is also a rediscovery of André Vigneault. And we should remind ourselves that while we've been talking about Malraux And, and Vigneault, and we've been talking about the 30s and the 40s, that some of the reproduction of works of art in books about art, the history of art date slightly earlier, let's say 1920s, 30s, but certainly between the 20s and the 50s is the time in which there's a, there's a, 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 a creation of a number of books about history of art that are accompanied by rich illustration. Um, and, and now we take it for granted that illustration of books about art history, whether printed or increasingly born digital, will have 
great images associated with him. But uh, Thomas, can you tell us about how revolutionary it was in the 30s to the 50s to have these substantially illustrated books on the history of art? And, and were they equally attractive to a general public as they were to scholars, or was it more to the scholars than the general public? Well, uh, as Walter has convincingly demonstrated, um, some of my Rose books, um, and especially the one um, Malraux is standing on in this um, iconic photograph, is in a certain way not an illustrated book. I, I would like to stress this difference. It's not an art historical book which, with illustrations as um, Wolfleen's Principles of Art History or uh, any other uh, book. They are albums on the basis of comparison, mostly with very short captions. He was criticized for this. Um, um, there is not a lot of basic information. The illustrations are facing each other and seemingly have some kind of resemblance, or the work of the works of art have some kind of resemblance, although they illustrate works of art or details from very different backgrounds, times, and cultural contexts, and they are sometimes taken out of the context, so um, you have no idea of the proportions, of the sizes in uh, the comparisons. This is the difficulty. Comparison might or might not be evident. And above all, what to make with the resemblance. For an art historian, the resemblance is more or less, for I am talking about an academic art historian, the resemblance is more or less sometimes a random choice. As I already mentioned, Malraux never studied art history. However, Malraux was a magic collageur. He offered images of cultures never seen in combination which are striking, astonishing, sometimes disturbing. If you like, one could say that the albums represented a collection of works of art of the same level of beauty overcoming traditional hierarchies. European and non-European art combined a respectful vision of global art. Would you agree, Walter, with that? Yes, I couldn't have, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> That's that's absolutely right. It's, it is the, the idea that instead of visiting the museum from room to room, you sit at home um, and you turn the pages and you um, go from image to image, from picture to picture, from sculpture to sculpture, just by turning the pages, not disturbed by too much commentary, fascinated by um, superficial and or essential uh, similarities. Um, and of course... Uh, in a way that is completely ignoring scale. I think this is something that that uh, Vigneault saw saw different. Uh, Vigneault Vigneault is not only important as the inventor or producer or um, maker of the Encyclopédie Photographique de l'Art, but he's also a very um, good photographer and he's very ambitious to give sculpture a realm, a space in which it can function, even in photography, which of course is two-dimensional, while Malraux, on the other hand, is trying to... He, he's a, uh, he has a magic grip, as Thomas has said, and he tries to um, put this magic into the lightning and the situation in which this art is photographed. And so he's mystifying a lot of um, art pieces that from 
themselves would be interesting enough to be not mystified, while Vigneault is always very matter-of-fact and he's very, not, not only ambitious, but very serious about what he's doing, uh, while Malraux is fascinating by himself and by the possibilities uh, that uh, are open to him with making uh, books. And it's, it's important, of course, to, uh, Thomas already mentioned, Uh, to stress that Malraux began from a different point. He made first he made books with illustrations. The first Musée Imaginaire was a book with illustrations. And when Gallimard took over uh, uh, Les Editions Tell, um, for the first time he changes completely, um, uh, and it's obvious that Vigneault gave the model for making um, to making books with images in the foreground and texts and commentaries in the background. Afterwards, he returned to what he originally made. But for this book on the floor, and this is the book uh, which is more or less an appropriation of uh, Vigneault's model, um, uh, he, he was in Vigneault's shoes, more or less, without mentioning him um, in the first volume. And this is one of the points, the first volume is the book on the floor. This is one of the points that are important that in the credits of the photographs at the at the end of the book, uh, some photographs are mentioned as authors, but Vigneault is not. And so um, it's one of the points where Malraux's habit not to quote uh, turns out also as a habit not to respect what other people had done before him. But Walter, may I just add uh, one point to this? You know, he didn't quote Vigneault, but it was evident that he used um, uh, his books. On the other hand, Malraux even went further. He manipulated the photographs. So um, he changed the backgrounds or he um, turned them uh, even in another direction. So he really interfered in the photographs. So he, he was an artist with these photographs in a certain way. And um, he used Vigneault, but he changed Vigneault. So we have to then uh, stress his um, own um, uh, way of um, dealing with these photographs. And he is the author, in a certain way, also of these photographs. That's right, in the way he appropriates them. That's right. What I would like to add to the, what I said before is that um, it's about time that somebody who is um, familiar with Uh, French culture with French language uh, excavates Vigneault's legacy, which is in the Paris uh, library as a, as a legacy, um, and give him uh, more publicity than I do with my book. My book is just uh, a hint at what he did, but I think it's about time somebody um, starts to decipher um, all the notebooks that he left there and put him in the place that he deserves to have. You know, Walter and Thomas, one of the legacies of uh, this kind of photographic layout uh, with images on left and right and this two-page spread of a book has to be the use of slides, uh, uh, photographic slides, in the lecturing of, in art history courses that we all took as undergraduates and even in some cases as graduate students, I suppose, uh, in which we had a, a two images on the wall. With, and they, there was a point of... the selection of the two to show some comparison or some difference between them, something that, some indication that there were some similarities or differences. The sense that one, pedagogically, one learned art history by looking at two images in comparison. Um, is that, that's at least the way it was in the United States and, and in the United Kingdom. Is it the way it was in Germany as well, that uh, actually this, 
this book layout had a kind of influence in how one lectured to students or how students learned from lecturers? It's an interesting question, but I think it's uh, we cannot really answer it. Um, it's it's an interf they interfere. They're There are two starting points for a new reception of art. The one is that you can buy a second projector for uh, slides, and the um, and the other is that you can print illustrated books and bind them. Uh, I found it very interesting that uh, one of the possible models for for uh, Vigneault's Encyclopédie Photographique de l'Art possibly was this um, series of reproductions that was published as the museum in Germany in the 1890s starting, but they did not make a bound volume, volume but they sold um, solitary plates. The, the principle was to print plates on a high, very high standard and sell them as single sheets and collectible single sheets and then give commentaries uh, as a kind of installment. Uh, this is the 1890s. It, it was, um, uh, the decisive development was that it, was, it became cheaper to reproduce black and white photographs on um, paper that could be used in books that would not be too thick and not too, too heavy. Um, and uh, so the paper would be thin enough to be bound to, to volumes. And this is the birth of the album as a, a double spread um, a reproduction, while before, obviously, it was easier to have them as um, single sheets and plates and sell them that way. I'm not sure if that influenced each other because the production spheres are too um, distant. I think that um, a lot of innovation in the publishing of books was made on the spot in the offices, in the, in the studios, um, without any contact or too much contact to what was done in the, in the uh, lecture halls and in the seminaries. We made um, um, a conference about Fritz Burger, which was one of my predecessors in the academy. And when he uh, began to teach 1912, he just ordered one slide projector. And I think um, when Wolflin ordered his second one, this was a revolution, but it did not spread immediately uh, over the place. But, but um, uh, Walter, I think that uh, Malraux knew Wolflin's kunstgeschichtliche Grundbegriffe. Um, and the book itself and the idea of the book is, of course, the basis of comparison. So I don't think uh, uh, either that um, there is a direct relationship to, from this book to, um, uh, to um, his later album, but the idea of comparison was in the air. And um, that inspired, of course, many, many people. Um, although I have to also to say, when I studied in Paris in the 1960s, uh, in the lectures of the French professors, there was only one slide. <laughs> right, right. No comparison. You make mention, Walter, that the uh, Malraux, of course, titled his book or his album uh, Le Musée Imaginaire, The Imaginary Museum, and that there was the uh, the Vigneault's Encyclopedia of Art was referred to by the author of its afterward as an entire museum in one's home. Um, 
that the effect of the of the way that these comparisons were made, you contextualize that in world art in colonial terms. This was also something that was a critique of contemporary museum culture as well, that in their concept of displays that Western museums colonize foreign cultures and subject them to a kind of intellectual colonialism according to modern European aesthetic standards. Uh, so is there a common critique that could be applied to both the book projects and the modern museum project in decontextualizing these uh, different works of art and making them seem as if there could be simplistic similarities between them when there's no substantial similarity that exists? Um, let me tell you, I was not happy that when I found out that I had to deal with this theme as well. <laughs> when I started to um, to uh, make the journey through this room in which Malraux stands with the leaves, with the double spreads of his book. I thought this would be a journey around a room. There would be a, um, a, a discussion of ways of reproducing art, of combining art, of publishing art. Uh, it would have been an essay I would have been completely content with. Um, but then um, I saw some of his other sources, for instance, the publication of Phaidon in Vienna as well as in London, which he certainly knew as well as Wolflin. If he knows, if, Thomas, I'm not sure if he knew Wolflin. Claudia Barmer, who wrote on um, Malraux, tried to find out um, in his library what was there, what he had read, and when he bought it, and in which edition he bought it. And it turned out Malraux wasn't much of a reader. But of course, he was professionally interested in what other publishing houses were doing. So he must have sifted through hundreds and thousands of books, not only to find the photographs that he would combine for his own purposes, but also to see what are they doing, because this was an, a market that was expanding and uh, each book was like a test what the public would buy and what they wouldn't and so he certainly was one of the best informed persons about what other publishing houses uh, were doing but back to the question uh, Jim that you, you posed um, I was not very happy when I discovered I had to deal with the theme of uh, globalization of art, of uh, the universal character of art, which um, Malraux uh, was very fond of. Um, because I think that the discussion of and the history of this um, discussion is not yet ready to be quoted or cited or to really give a foundation. But of course it was... in inevitable to deal with it because most of the material that he worked with came from the Louvre as well as the material that uh, Vignot worked with came from the Louvre but with a decisive difference. The material that Vignot worked with came from the Mediterranean. The material that Malraux worked with came from the Louvre as a result of colonial exchange between France and the colonies. And so the horizon broadened and I think this was politically um, delicate, uh, but in retrospect, we should not overemphasize uh, this point because in the horizon of their time, it was progressive what they were, were doing because they gave importance to um, images by baptizing them as art that before had no importance as all, as for instance, as they said at the time, the native cult uh, culture and the native art of Africa. It was a valuation. It, they gave value to things by calling them art and publishing them in art books in context with European pieces that made um, that that gave a new perspective 
Although the foundations of that and the Louvre is a colonial museum uh, in, in, in this respect, the foundation of them was based on um, imperialism. But this reminds of, of Walter Benjamin's dialectical remark that there is no um, piece of culture um, that is not also a piece of um, barbarism. Um, and so I think we have to judge them in the horizon of their times. Nowadays, it is much more complicated. And that was one of the reasons that I wasn't glad to have this theme as well in my book, but I had to face it. And nowadays, it's much more complicated. It begins with the terminology in which you write about it. Do you call it art uh, or do you call it images? Can you as easily uh, decontextualize it as they did when they made uh, these art albums? It's a very complicated situation. But um, to give it a historical view, um, not only in text, but also in illustrations, that was one of the aims that I had to fulfill. Let me ask you another question that might be related to this, and, and you can tell me if you think it is. Uh, near the end of the book, uh, you introduce the idea and the meaning of the imaginary museum, uh, and that is that you point out that in the roots in Latin, imaginaire meant relating to images, and that in modern French it means dreamed up, not real, fictive, false, and that in Malraux's usage that it was poised somewhere between image and imagination, between the pictorial and the fanciful. Tell us more about that, because partly what you've been describing with regard to other cultures is imagining a relationship that might not, in fact, exist, but that has been ultimately, ironically, perhaps liberating in some respects. <laughs> um, besides being a politician, an adventurer and a, a soldier, he was a poet. And I think most of his writings are poetic, even if he thought them art historical. And so uh, every notion that he uses um, certainly has uh, double or triple meanings. And he loved this game with the meanings of words, not only in his novels, uh, and his, um, but also in his uh, art historical uh, writings. And if you would do a philological study on Marot's use of the term imaginary, Uh, you would see that over 40 years of his publishing, it changes um, from a good uh, marketing slogan, a good idea in the beginning that folk, that gave the reproduction, um, uh, the, the art album, a kind of metaphor, um, to the late Malraux, who uh, is fascinated by um, the possibilities that images foster imagination and imagination Uh, kind of re-fosters what you can do with images. That is what he's playing with in his photographies as well, or the photographies that he made for his book. Um, it's, but it's difficult to, to find a, a thread to follow in his use of the word imaginary. I think he loved the openness of his notions much more than the precision. <laughs> okay, Thomas, uh, let me give you the last word on, on Walter's important book. Uh, the Getty is publishing it because it relates directly to the Getty Research Institute's interest in the historiography of art history and the history of museum culture. Uh, what are your final thoughts on the contributions of Walter's book with regard to your project? Well, this is a complicated question. Um, uh, the, there are so many aspects in Walter's uh, book um, which are really inspiring. Um, we are very much interested not only in the history of art, but also in the history of the museum. Museums have their history of collecting. Uh, in most cases, um, 
they cannot present the history of world art. That is impossible. Uh, some, by their history, embrace an almost um, encyclopedic collection. However, museums are always incomplete, and the collections are displayed by geography. This is, in a certain way, what Malraux wanted to overcome. He reached out with ambition to transfer the idea that art is universal. The media he developed, and in a certain way improved to perfection in his view, were these albums of photography, which Walter has interpreted in such a fabulous and convincing way. Photography allowed to bring the examples of the creativity of mankind wherever they came from together. The medium photography, in his view, was able to educate and to, in a certain way, transfer the beauty of art from all over the world. This is the imaginary museum, in my view. The legacy of Marot is also that the encyclopedic museum is extremely important, in a certain way, in our uh, global uh, society. But this is only one way to go. You need photography and the albums and other ways to demonstrate the importance of um, beauty all over the world. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. <laughs>